Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all involved in some form or another. I'm not guilty. <laughs> the dead won't bother me. It's the living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello, everyone. This is Janelle, and you're listening to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast with Vicky. We're coming in for Bummer City, USA. It really is. Before we started, we were talking about how sad, how sad this episode's going to be. Yeah, it's going to be fucked, really? you guys. Really? See, we're bring your box of tears. I mean, tears, box of tears. Box of tears. Bring the tears. For them tears. But oh, also, God. maybe maybe some boots to go stomp on people because you're filled with rage. <laughs> if this is your first time listening, I'm real sorry. Yeah, maybe you should listen to something else first and then come back. <laughs> um, yeah, we. this is going to be a real heavy episode. It I'm is. just going to say it straight out, off the top. So you can listen to the news and then peace out if you want. But yeah. <laughs> Or you could say you might learn something. Uh, that is our main goal. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to head over to the newsroom now, I think. Yep. Okay. Let's Box go. of tears in the newsroom. <laughs> So our news this week comes from South Carolina. Um, oh, God. <laughs> this is straight from CNN. Um, CNN. <laughs> so a six-year-old man <laughs> strangled a woman and was attempting her to bury her in the backyard of their South Carolina home. But while he was in the process of burying her, he suffered a cardiac event and died. Instant karma. So <laughs> police uh, responded to the home for an unresponsive man lying in his yard. Never mind the body. <laughs> his name. Well, his, it was part. It was buried. But okay, they like so actually did finish it. Well, <laughs> it was like it sounded to me like it was a hole that was like not all the way full, but the body was all mm-hmm. the way buried. Okay. Um, so the man was identified as Joseph McKinnon. Natural causes are are what they're thinking. <laughs> Yeah, um, all that effort that he exerted digging a fucking hole. 
when they looked into the pit, they found the remains of 65-year-old Patricia Dent, who also lived at the home. Um, they are saying it does appear that she died of foul play. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't just trying to get out of a funeral charge, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Nope. This is directly from the article, quote, an investigation led deputies to believe McKinnon attacked Dent inside their home. Uh, the release said deputies and McKinnon then bound and wrapped her in trash bags before putting her in the previously dug pit in the yard. And then, yeah, I had the cardiac event and just keel over and died. So good. <laughs> so good. So fine. I guess the world evened out. And fuck you too. Yes. <laughs> is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we're going to move on to Netflix and Kill, which this week is uh, Hulu, coming at you live from Hulu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to talk about Captive Audience. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> I have not quite watched this yet, so mm-hmm. I know you were, like, on it. Yeah. You were mm-hmm. You were waiting. So this is a, <laughs> a three-part documentary series that looks at the case of Steven Stainer, a case that we have talked about extensively on the show. Sure did. Um, he was kidnapped <laughs> from his home at seven years old and then later returned to his family at the age of 14. Uh, allegedly, <laughs> no. Uh, he, <laughs> he allegedly he, returned. <laughs> didn't they think it was somebody else? No. Was that a different case? That was a different case. Okay, just kidding. That was the just kidding. The chicken coop murderers. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, there was another case where they thought mm-hmm. it was somebody else, or it was another kid. Yeah. Anyway, um, so he was returned to his family at age fourteen, and then had to like learn how to live at home again amongst mm-hmm. this like media frenzy. The Stainers were again in the public eye in '99 when Stephen's older brother Carrie was arrested for the murder of four women around Yosemite National Park, which we also discussed on the show. Covered that. <laughs> um, so. What did you think? It was a fucking tragedy. Yes. Yeah. It was so sad to watch. Yeah. But also, okay. they brought back all the people who did the made-for-TV movie. I saw this. And can I just say the guy who played him is still hot? Oh. oh, my God. <laughs> oh my I had such a massive crush oh on that particular God. actor. I was like, oh, he's still hot. <laughs> yeah, they had them read the... They had them read the transcripts from the audio recording interviews okay. that the director did before making the movie. Oh, wow. And the people who were in the movie read as the people they acted as. And oh it was my God. fucking intense. Yeah. And it, like, the one main actor guy whose name I always fucking forget. I just call him Hottie McHotface. And <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, he doesn't need a name because he's just a face. No. <laughs> um, he was, like, reading the transcripts and he's like, this is gut-wrenching. Because he was a kid. Yeah. He was a child actor for this. So, right. like, when you're a child actor, you don't really get a say in what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was like, this is, like, heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It really is. It's a real <laughs> fucked up story. Mm-hmm. Um, Steven Sainer is no longer alive. He died in an accident. In a motorcycle crash. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I saw they they also talk about his kids not really getting mm-hmm. to know, like, their father. Because he, di- he died when they were young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it looks I'm, – I'm very much looking forward to it. I am planning on watching it. Um, it is. You better bring your box of tears. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I need to be emotionally ready is yes, what you're saying. Hopefully really it's a light hard. therapy week. Like, Yeah. I don't haven't. do it if you need to process <laughs> things. Uh-uh. Oh, my God. So that is Captive Audience on Hulu. Uh, check it out. 
This is that part of the show where we say content might not be appropriate for all listeners. This week, we are talking about some really horrific crimes. It's going to be very triggering for some people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will be talking about definitely some sensitive subjects, I would yes, say. Yes, very sensitive subjects. But... If you're in a good place to listen, it's worth a listen. Because mm-hmm. what are we talking about, Especially Janelle? after what happened yesterday as of this recording in the oh news. Oh, my God. Yeah. I didn't even think about that because I started doing this before that. But anyway, we're going to talk about hate crimes. <laughs> yeah. For reference, we're recording this the day after the shooting in Milwaukee. No. No. Not that one. No. The, the shooting one in, in New York. Buffalo. New York. Yeah, yeah. Not there's that a, one. There is a shooting in Milwaukee yesterday, yeah, too. Yeah, talk- um, I was talking about the, yes. the shooting in the grocery store in Buffalo of yeah. the self-proclaimed anti-Semite racist. Yeah. Yeah, straight up. Literally had the N-word on his gun. So that's cool. Yep. Um, um, we researched and we're, we're planning this before that, but it just goes to show you. Hate crimes. Hate crimes. Still fucking happening. And no, it's not domestic terrorism, you fucking cocksucker. It's a hate crime. <laughs> yeah. Also terrorism. I think it's both. I mean, it is terrorizing. I think it's both. I think um, it's both. But the news uses that to de-escalate it so that it doesn't seem as serious as it is. Because it's not a hate crime unless someone's lynched, right? That's the that's what people say. Mm. Nope. Sorry. No. Wrong. No. Mine is going to talk a little bit about what the definition of a hate crime is okay. and how it can be interpreted. It's going to be a music-heavy episode. Okay. <laughs> Something for yourself. All right. Because um, I first came across this case when I was young, punk rock, teenage Janelle. Oh, boy. The, We're going to see the anarchist Janelle. We are. I mean, the anarchist <laughs> Janelle never left. She yeah, just true. morphed. <laughs> she started wearing less black. <laughs> the anniversary of this crime has been memorialized in punk rock circles for decades now, which is terrifying to think about. We're going to peek at a case that challenged the notions of what a hate crime was and is. And this is going to be about the murder of Brian Dennecke. Mm. So I'm going to start with a song of a band you may know. Oh. Dropcake Murphys. Oh. (laughs) I do know them. And I'll tell you why this is a music-heavy episode in a moment. Okay. Enjoy. The lyrics might be hard to hear. So that is the song Fortunes of War by the Dropkick Murphys. And uh, it's one of a very long list of songs that were made about this case after it happened okay. that we'll hear a little bit more from another band later. Um, and I will give you the playlist if you want to listen to it. It talks a lot about the case itself, but also just the overreaching ideologies about hate crimes and, um, you know, the way that a lot of punks are viewed in a larger society. Gotcha. So um, we're going to go to 1997, Amarillo, Texas. 
Okay. So fucking Texas, y'all. Texas. Uh, <laughs> um, if you're not familiar, I'm going to give you a little demographic information about Amarillo so that we can kind of better understand the overall reaching ideas of what's happening here. Um, Amarillo <clears throat> is in the panhandle of Texas, closest to the border of Oklahoma. Um, so the worst part of Texas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's heavy into agricultural and, and meatpacking as a business. And just to give you some demographic info so you can understand the makeup of Amarillo itself, uh, 23.3% of adults aged 25 and older have obtained a bachelor's degree. Okay. 85% have obtained a high school diploma or equivalent. Okay. So lower numbers than the national average in terms of education. Okay. Um, in terms of demographics for the actual area, 53.5 non-Hispanic white. 6.8 black or African American, 0.8% American Indian, Alaskan Native, 4.1% Asian, 5% two or more races, and 33% Hispanic. So we're talking okay. about a predominantly white population sure. in an area that is actually usually more Hispanic than that. Yeah. Um, so uh, lots of whiteies. <laughs> okay. Um, it is also nicknamed the Bomb City. This is due to the nuclear weapons assembly plant in Amarillo, Texas. Oh, good Lord. So we are walking into an area with limited educated people, very white, highly racist, extremely blue collar, and pretty much a dystopia. Oh, God. So perfect. This is terrifying. For punk music. <laughs> this, sounds, this sounds horrible. It is. This area was full on good old boy culture. Oh, we are talking kids who were raised on football who said that they're going to be football players and only pay attention to college if it's through a football scholarship. Gotcha. As in any town, you will always have those who are oppositional to this. It's a homogenous existence. You're all white people, all the same families, nothing's different. So that's going to breed outsider culture, right? Because yeah. you're going to want to push against that kind of homogeny. Uh, this town in particular had a large-ish punk population. Um, I say that because they also lumped in metalheads and goths into this, which is pretty it's all hilarious. The same, right? They right, all wear yeah. black. It's, um, it's fine. <laughs> but it's not. No, it's totally not. Um, the punk crew had quite a few young men and women who were aged 16 to 19 years old. So that was the general group of people that hung out together. Some of them were dropouts. Some of them squatted in local abandoned houses. Uh, most of them were runaways, and a few of them were connected to band culture in the area and started bands. There would be house shows in basements and backyards, which often got busted up by cops. So, like, paralleling my existence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, so hard. One of those kids was 17-year-old Brian Dennecke. He was a transplant from Kansas who grew up in Amarillo. He dropped out of high school at 16, but then went on to get his GED. Uh, shortly after, he moved out of his parents' home and into an apartment above a club and made ends meet washing dishes at a place called the Catfish Shack. Okay. Um, he was a singer of a punk band called the White Slave Traders. And I know, epic, it's right? Very punk. That's a very, like, classic punk <laughs> yeah, name. right? We're going we're gonna to trade slaves that are white. <laughs> um, and he hung out with all of his friends at backyard shows, drinking and having fun. Um, he loved to skateboard and... His standard look included a mohawk that was often dyed blue or green. He had the classic collar, the leather jacket. There is an interview that I watched uh, that they had with his brother where he brought out his jacket 
and showed the kid that was interviewing him his like artistic abilities and it was sweet and sad at the very same yeah. time and also very reminiscent of the jacket that i made yeah. when i was 16 you literally <laughs> like described the exact image i had in my head of what this guy looked like for he real. looked like every person i dated from 17 yeah. to 18 yeah <laughs> I know who that was. Well, not every person, well, but like half person, the people yeah. I dated. Yeah. And then I was like, I need to stop having a type. And then yeah. I just dated all these randos. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so he was kind of self-sufficient. He was very classic punk rock, but he was also an artist. Um, he actually participated in the art installation called Dynamite Museum. Um, this project was funded by Stanley Marshall III, who was the owner and the artist of the Cadillac Ranch. So if you're very familiar with the spray-painted yes. Cadillacs, yes, um, yes, yes. that was that guy. Also, might do an episode on that guy sometime because he's a fucking pedophile. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but the Dynamite Museum, it was a project that sought to blow up the idea of what a museum is by taking Blow these, up. Right? Dy- Dynamite City, Bomb City. Um, oh, God. So they were taking these road signs, painting them, and placing them all over Amarillo, Texas, where it forced you to go into all of these different locations to view the art. So not having it centralized, not being in a very standard kind yeah, of that's uh, cool. sanitized white existence of a museum. It's really sure. – it's something that I really enjoy and have done a lot of research on about taking art – out of like the sanitized kind of rich yeah. world of museums and galleries. Um, so it's still up and you can view it. So if you do ever go to Amarillo, Texas, there's some outside of Amarillo too. Yeah. Um, if you're passing through, check it out. It's really cool. Nice. So Brian and his brother were two of the artists in the collective who painted and installed them. Like I said, they're all over the place. There's a really cool picture of a bunch of them in Amarillo where they're like one after the other in a row. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting. The Southwest art installation scene was really, really wild at the time. And I enjoy it. There's so many weird fucking things to see in Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> so they were just, you know, wild punk kiddos creating chaos and art very near and dear to my heart. Um, it was also after this time when um, he began assisting runaway teens by providing them with food and letting them know where there was abandoned places that they could take over because of the kind of squatter laws that were happening in Texas, if you took over a house and squatted in there, they couldn't technically kick you out. Yeah. Um, so he was kind of helping them skirt the law. Sure. Um, now, in contrast to this, we have the mass majority of people in the area who were very opposite of this. Yeah. Um, we had the classic jocks, the football players, the preps is what they were called in a lot of the interviews that I, I read. Uh, now, these kids seem to be really clean cut and all American, but the reality is they were doing just as bad stuff, if not worse things than the punk kids. Um, surprise, surprise. Right? They too were drinking and often did this while driving. Mm-hmm. Um, the other kids didn't have cars, so they were just <clears throat> drinking, drinking and, and skateboarding. Around. Yeah. <laughs> um, they too were doing drugs. In fact, some of them were dealing drugs. Yep. Um, but the difference is that they looked normal and they were just doing quote unquote silly kid stuff as opposed to the punk rock kids who were quote unquote outlaw criminals. In fact, the police actually harassed the punk kids for doing the same things that the jock prep kids would do. They would bust up the punk kids' parties, arrest, and pass out tickets to them. Um, But the other kids who got their parties busted up, they would just get the classic flashlight to the face, go home. Yeah. I've actually witnessed this kind of dichotomy difference happen. Oh, I'm sure. I have been to lots of punk parties that got busted up by police where you had to run for your fucking life. 
got patted down by Chicago cops. You know, it's happened. <laughs> um, but in contrast to that, I dated a guy who was a former football player for a hot minute until I realized the error of my ways. Yes. And was at a party with them. And the cops came into the barn because we are in the middle of nowhere and sure. did the classic flashlight, you guys need to go home thing. And I was like, huh, interesting. Yeah. I'm used to getting chased. <laughs> but you guys just get told to go home and you're all drunk. And you're driving. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, ugh. Um, these two groups of kids would clash often, but usually it was just down to like jocks yelling vulgar comments at the punk kids, like calling them freaks and far worse stuff that also starts with an F that's really inappropriate and dumb. The punks would usually shout back or throw things, but very few times it came to like physical altercations. That is until 1997. That particular year, the violence escalated and boiled over. The jock group of kids began to physically intimidate the punk kids more and more. Um, this led to the punk kids carrying weapons like billy clubs, chains on their clothes, and even pepper spray to protect themselves. Boy, howdy, do I remember that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when someone asked me, why do you have studs on your shoes? I was like, well, it hurts a lot worse when you kick someone and you have spikes on, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <for laughs> All about real. protecting yourself. Mm -hmm. On December 6, 1997, 17-year-old Dustin Camp got into a confrontation with a punk kid named John King in the parking lot of an IHOP in Amarillo. Now, the IHOP was the all-night hangout spot for teens in the area. Again, unlimited cups of coffee, smoking cigarettes until the sun comes up inside, yeah. 1997. <laughs> yep. So because this is the hot spot, it would also be the site of clashes because everyone was hanging out there. It was late at night. You have nothing else to do. You're a bunch of bored teenagers. Let's pick a fight. Sure. Obviously. Sure. Now, Duskin Camp called out his regular insults to King, um, but King was one of the bunch who had the shortest fucking fuse. And he got in this kid's face and he was like, you won't fucking call me the F word. They did some shoving. Classic tough guy. You want to fight? You hit first. Kind of a thing. Um, and then both groups of friends pulled the guys apart and they were kicked out of the IHOP promptly. Right? Of course. As the groups dispersed outside the IHOP, Brian Denneke and a few others came up. The jocks were getting into their cars to peel away when John... King shouted, fuck you, to all of them. This led to Dustin Camp getting in his Cadillac and driving towards the group of punk kids. He got inches away from John King, who then pulled out his expandable police baton and smashed the car window as it passed. That's how fucking close he was. Oh, my God. The Cadillac then turned around and comes back, missing them by inches and going over a curb. He turns around again. He then appears to veer slightly off. Um, but then immediately turns his wheel hard and goes back towards the group of kids where he hits Brian Denneke, pushing him under his car as he drives over the curb, pulling Denneke under with him up against the curb. Oh, my God. There is God. a picture if you would like to look. That yeah. is the crime scene photo. There is a movie called Bomb City. That's um, wild. And they do a horrifyingly excellent job of... Showing how he got ran over by the car. Uh -huh. To the point where it was like, this is too real for me. Yeah. Yikes. Camp then fled the scene. According to the two passengers in his car, he exclaimed as he ran over Denneke that he was a, quote, ninja in his caddy. What the fuck? The girl in the car yelled to Camp to turn around as she was scared that Denneke was dead. Um, as Camp kept driving, the girl stated in an interview later that she knew in her heart Camp had killed Denneke. After dropping off his passengers, Camp drove home and hit his car in the garage. 
Camp then told his parents what happened, to which they replied, go to bed and we will figure it out in the morning. What the fuck? That's not the right reaction, guys. Always turn your children (laughs) in. That's not it. Turn your children in. They're pieces of shit. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the other kids immediately called the police at the scene. The cops came to the scene. The two kids who were dropped off immediately when they got into the house, they called, they told their parents, they called the police right away. Good. And early in the next, you know, early in the morning, the next few hours, um, the police did come to the camp's house to find Camp and his vehicle. The Cadillac was later seized by police on a search warrant and examined. There were gashes and dings on its hood, uh, as well as blood on the undercarriage. Um, inside the vehicle seat sat a nearly empty, empty bottle of Crown Royal whiskey and an 18-pack of Bud Light with 13 cans gone. Jesus. So obviously he was trashed. Right. With the evidence collected and statements from many eyewitnesses taken, authorities pieced together what had transpired that night. Camp was consequently arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Camp's father would also be charged. Uh, Michael Camp was formally charged with making false statements to police as he stated he had no idea what they were talking about when they came to get the car. What the fuck? Uh, His father was sentenced to 60 days deferred adjudication, probation, uh, and a $100 fine after a plea bargain. Okay. Not terrible. Um, Camp was charged and went to trial shortly after, and this is where uh, this entire case gets pretty fucked. The defense stated that Denicky was the aggressor in the whole affair. (laughs) Okay. But witnesses obviously at the scene stated otherwise, especially since he showed up after everything had started. The defense also mentioned that a nice kid like Camp would never do such a thing, right? He's such a nice, clean-cut kid. He's a football player. They also stated uh, how he never had a record. And he was a good kid because he was on the football team. So? Um. I just want to tell you that I know so many football players and baseball players and basketball players who are alcoholics, drug addicts, rapists. Have fucking anger management issues. Yeah. Like, just literally. overall fuck boys. Like- also, there comes a point where, like, le- okay, so when you're talking about the legal aspect of things, right? Mm-hmm. There comes a point when you're talking about intent where he mm. had the mm. option mm-hmm. to stop at any point in time. Like the fact that he was driving and driving and driving three times, three passes. Yes. Like at any point, there was definitely multiple times at any point in that, that he could have stopped and didn't. So like that speaks a lot yeah. to intent too. Exactly. Jesus. <sighs> Jesus. The defense also stated that the other kids were goons and thugs, and so they deserved what they got. Oh, that's okay. What? They were basically trying to paint it as self-defense. Okay. No. Which is fucking insane, because no. how can a person in a fucking car be threatened by a boy on the street who had no weapons? Yeah. Yeah. Self-defense. Fucking Texas and their self-defense. God. Um, the witnesses in the car were also called... And they discussed Camp's remarks, even adding that he stated, I bet he liked that after he drove away. After he said, I'm a ninja in my caddy. God. Uh, The jury verdict came back and they stated that Camp had acted recklessly rather than with intent and found Camp guilty of only voluntary manslaughter. That's kind of surprising. It is. Because I feel like intent is definitely there. Oh, yeah. As a result, Camp received a sentence of 10 years of probation and a fine of $10,000. That's it? That's it. Okay. Well. Um, This created a huge rift within the community as the sentence was extremely light. When interviewed, jurors said that the kid deserved a second chance. 
But what about the child that he murdered? Yeah, no kidding. Now, there is somewhat of a happy ending in this particular instance. Camp would go on to immediately violate his probation. <laughs> okay. Because he's, I feel like at that point, he's like, I'm invincible. Like, oh, they yeah. cannot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got off easy. I can do whatever I want. On June 16th, 2001, he was charged with underage drinking, evading arrest, leaving a residence past court-appointed curfew. Okay. Hitting all the marks. Yeah. And in September, he was sentenced to eight years in jail for violating that probation. Camp wound up serving only five years and was released in 2006 with parole. Uh, This parole was set to expire in 2009, for which I found no additional updates or information on him. Okay. So I'm assuming that he didn't go on to murder more people or well, violate. That's good, I guess. Um, in 1999 and during the early 2000s, the case was the subject of multiple shows and documentaries such as Dateline, NBC, 2020, to name a few. In 2001, the case was brought up by Marilyn Manson at the Disinfo conference while addressing the issues of causes of youth violence. If you're not familiar, this is also when Columbine was happening. And they threw both of these <sighs> events together in a discussion. <laughs> Oh, my God. Also, because the guys who, at Colin, who were at Columbine also had a thing against the jocks and were also persecuted. Yeah. I mean, also, Marilyn Manson is a rapist. Yeah. He's probably <laughs> he's saying, big time problematic. He but talked yes, yeah. quite a bit about this case. And he's like, it has nothing to do with the kids' reactions and everything to do with what caused those reactions. Yeah. Sure. Anyway, the conflict between the jocks and the punks in the city had also been compared to widespread social divisions in the Columbine High School. Academic articles had mentioned Brian's case briefly while arguing to expand the definition of biased crimes beyond religion, sexuality, and racial groupings. So this is where we talk about why they were trying to pull it into hate crime. Now, during the trial, the district attorney made several attempts to argue that this was a hate crime. Now, a little background on hate crime is uh, it was enacted in Congress in 1968, so... Hate crimes weren't a thing until 1968, guys. Yep. Um, That was the first federal hate crime case statute. Um, The 1968 statute made it a crime to use or threaten to use force to willfully interfere with any person because of race, color, religion, or national origin, and because the person is participating in a federally protected activities, uh, such as public education, employment, jury service, travel, or enjoyment of public accommodations, or helping others to do so. So that's... A confusing end there. So if the person is doing things in public education, employment, jury service, travel, or enjoyment of public accommodations, or helping a person to do so. Mm-hmm. That's broad. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it can be used. Yeah. Um, in 1988, uh, protections on the basis of familial status and disability were added. And in 1996, Congress passed the Church Arson Prevention Act. And under this act, it is a crime to deface, damage, or destroy religious property or interfere with a person's religious practice in situations affecting interstate commerce. Um, The act also bars defacing, damaging, or destroying religious property because of the race, color, or ethnicity of the persons associated with the property. Mm -hmm. In 2009, Congress passed the President Obama-signed Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crime Prevention Acts. Um, It expanded the federal definition of hate crimes, enhancing the legal toolkit available in prosecutors, um, which increased the ability for federal law enforcement to to support, you know, state or local partners. Um, That is another big issue with hate crimes is the federal jurisdiction versus state or local jurisdictions. Yeah. 
Um, this law removed the then existing jurisdictional obstacles. Um, they often ran into these issues, especially when it came to ra- race or religion motivated violence. Yeah. They also kind of added additional federal protections based on gender, disability, gender identity, and sexual orientation because of the Matthew Shepard. It okay. So two <laughs> things. One, we'll talk about this mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Of, in yours. In and more extensively. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also it only kind of yes. eliminated some of the jurisdictional issues mm-hmm. because we're still talking about federal versus state. So like yes. It's complicated. It's very complicated. complicated. And it always has been. Every case we talk about, even state to state, we can't fucking get it together. Yes. Yeah. Um, Before the Civil Rights Division prosecutes a hate crime, the attorney general or someone the attorney general designates must certify in writing that it meets these requirements. The state does not have jurisdiction. The state has requested that the federal government assumes jurisdiction. The verdict or sentence obtained pursuant to state charges did not demonstratively vindicate the federal interest in eradicating bias-motivated violence. That is a fucking mouthful. And a prosecution by the United States in the public interest and necessary to secure substantial justice. So how does that fucking relate to what I'm talking about? They wanted to push this case further past the state of Texas to get the hate crime included in there. But because Mm -hmm. Texas... (laughs) <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And because white on white child, they were like, it's fine. But they were persecuting these group of teens based upon the way in which they lived. You could say that they were poor and they would be discriminated against because of poverty. A lot of things could have been uh, said and argued and weren't because Texas yeah. did not allow it to happen. Yeah. They wanted to also kind of persecute him under the conspiracy against rights, um, which makes it unlawful for two or more persons to conspire to injure, threaten, or intimidate a person in any state, territory, or district in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him or her by the Constitution or the laws of the U.S. So they also tried to kind of pull that in and argue that. Mm -hmm. Again, fucking Texas. All of these things were dismissed. The judge was like... No, to the hell no, to the hell hell no mm-hmm. on all of this stuff. So they couldn't pull in hate crime, even though they kept arguing it. And I'm kind of a little surprised they didn't take it to the Supreme Court or try to move past it um, to kind of open a broader discussion about it, because this case still comes up. People still talk about it. Yeah. The judge in Camp's case denied all of these attempts. He just was absolutely like, He's a good kid. He needs a second chance and didn't look at the broader scope of the issue. Mm-hmm. Every year since Brian Denneke's murder, kids in the community hold concerts and place memorials. Um, and this has become nationwide after Columbine. And there's still discussions to this day of whether or not the ideas about or laws regarding hate crimes and even the use of conspiracy against rights um, should be broadened. Yeah. <laughs> Which look where we are right now. They're trying to take away abortion. Like, oh hello. <laughs> yeah. Um, all of these things are connected. Um, but there's want to throw up. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Keep going. No, it's fine. We're going to end with some music <laughs> to soothe your soul or increase your rage. Um, several prominent punk bands made songs about this incident and the hostility towards people who are different. I want to end with the song from total chaos Uh, Just so you can hear some lyrics, they do pull in the news reports in the intro of the song. So that'll give you another another idea of how this case was being played out in the news media and the effects that it had on it and the outcome. 
And like I said, we'll put up a song list if you want to hear it further. But there are a lot of these songs and bands who go into detail about the laws and the crime and the overall charged feelings about what's happening in a lot of these small towns um, where it's okay for someone to get murdered because they look like they're a bad person. Mm -hmm. So we're going to play the Total Chaos song. Um, It's called A Punk Killed Murdered. Brian Dennehy was run over and killed by 16-year-old Dustin. Brian Dennehy dressed like a punk rocker. He wore a spiked dog collar and had a mohawk haircut. Dustin was the captain of the high school football team. The killing occurred during a fight between the punks and a group called the Preps, which included the children of some of Amarillo's wealthy assistants. Last summer, after a week-long trial, Dustin was convicted of manslaughter. But instead of going to prison, put on probation and allowed to go free. Free, 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 free. Sorry, he does that for a long time, so I'll skip over it. <laughs> goes, like, for five minutes, and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> was Total Chaos's song about the Brian Dennehy murder. Um, you oh can boy. listen to all of that fantastic. There's like tw- fucking 12 songs on this list about this in particular. And like I said, there are still bands and concerts and memorials to this particular um, crime because of the effects that it had on people. If you've ever watched the movie Suburbia from the 80s, which was right before this, it also depicts kids squatting in a house after they've been kicked out or moved out or left um, because of abuse, sexual abuse, all of these things that are happening to these kids that cause this kind of reaction to turn to this music and to turn to this like street lifestyle. But I would recommend watching that uh, and the movie Bomb City to get a better idea of the case. Um, But that is the murder of Brian Dennehy. Was it a hate crime, Vicky? Was it a hate crime? Mm. That is the question. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. So, I we do not typically cover big cases, but I couldn't help right. myself. Yeah. I mean, when <laughs> it comes to instance, hate crimes, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, so, when I was in college, uh, I 
went to, interestingly enough, a Lutheran college. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, because one of the years we did a play called The Laramie Project, mm-hmm. um, which is about uh, the Matthew Shepard case that you you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So when you brought up that we were doing this topic, it was the first thing that came to mind because I ran. So for that show, I ran the lights. I was I was a tech person. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being the first time that I really like learned about the incident because really, yes, I remember when it happened because well, (laughs) so I would have been like eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that, def- I think I was just a little too young for that yeah. to be. I started watching the news and listening to NPR way too fucking early for a yeah. child. <laughs> it was definitely like, ju- I just a little out of my grasp of like, I don't even, honest, like I literally do not remember like seeing anything about it or mm-hmm. hearing about it until really I was in college and like learned about this whole big event, which was awful. We're going to talk about it. I remember seeing it. it on fucking MTV News. <clears throat> That's where I saw it first. Which shouldn't be watching it on MTV right. at 12. But you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before we dive into that story, because I think it is an important story for people to know, mm-hmm. I do want to talk about, since we were just discussing hate crime laws mm-hmm. in the United States, I want to talk it's for a second inflated. <laughs> about um, this interesting like chart that I found on... Ooh. One of the um, on justice.org or, or justice.gov, mm-hmm. Department of Justice.gov. So they have this whole section in regards to hate crime laws because uh, really now, I would say since the 90s, essentially, is when the hate crime laws kind of started gaining more steam. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, after the Civil right. Rights Act was signed in the 60s. The like, 60s. Anyway. <laughs> um so above this chart says federal laws protect against certain crimes motivated by the protected classes, right? Race, color, national origin, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gen- gender, gender identity, and disability. First of all, as you pointed out, this was not always the case. Mm-hmm. It used to be uh, race, color, national origin, and religion. That was it. That was it. And even then. <laughs> However, as you also mentioned, someone can straight up say they're an anti-Semite and they're like, nope, it's fine. Yes. As you mentioned earlier, no, it's okay. The laws vary state to state, which is something I find really interesting. So I found this chart. Interesting or fucking mortifying? Both. I found this chart that was, let me see, it was updated May. Oh boy. May 9th, 2022. Oh, okay. boy. Okay. I can tell you that there are two states in the United States that still have zero laws regarding hate crimes. Can you tell me what those states are? Okay. <laughs> if you think real long and hard about it, you could probably guess, but I'm curious. I want to say Florida? No. Damn. Mississippi? No. <laughs> Texas? No. Is it the South? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's the South. Yeah. Um, kind of. Okay. Uh, so yeah. it's South Carolina. Okay. I'm a little surprising. Uh-huh. And Wyoming. Wyoming. Which will be even more. We'll talk a little you bit more in depth about that later. Um, there are some states who only have like Arkansas, I found really interesting. They have a hate crime law pertaining to one thing, and that is religion. Not surprised. Um, I just finished a class where we had to research Confederate monuments in states. 
Arkansas and Texas were real big problems. Yeah. So I also South Carolina. I'm what, happy what to you say <laughs> that Illinois has uh, generally pretty strong hate crime laws, mm-hmm. except for um, gender identity. But I'll also say like gender identity is it's a newer. relatively newer thing. Yeah. And it does take a long time to get that. I wish it wasn't that way, but like it does. So we're not too bad when no. it comes to that in terms of state Mm-mm. laws. There Mm-mm. are lots of weird Arkansas. Places. Just one. Texas. Texas. Okay, let me look Fucking at Texas. Florida. Here. I just got a magnificent shirt that says "Say Gay" on it. <laughs> Texas has all the gender identity, mm-hmm. and Florida. Let's look. Let's look. Has all but gender identity and gender sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Cool. They're the ones who are saying "Don't say gay." So are you fucking surprised? And I'm sure that'll change within the next couple of months because primaries. Yeah. But also <laughs> they're realizing it doesn't mean the things they thought it means. Like, yep. Which is also hilarious. We could get on top. We're going to save Old that conversation for another time. don't understand the yeah. youths is what we'll call it. Yes. <laughs> um, so my point being is it's not consistent across all states. Federal laws really only apply when it crosses state borders. Mm-hmm. But I did want to talk about the Matthew Shepard case because it is such a turning point, it's a really. landmark case. Yeah. And it had such a big effect on the hate crime laws in the country. Mm-hmm. So. And you're, if you're thinking about it, this is coming right on the heels of all of the AIDS problems, too. Yes. So it's just like one thing after another. Yeah. Yeah. It really was like this time in history where things culminated like – in such a way that it was the almost like the perfect environment for mm-hmm. um, legislation like that to be brought up. We'll get to that. Yes, we're getting too <laughs> yes. excited. Uh, okay. <laughs> so Matthew Shepard was born in 1976 to Judy and Dennis Shepard. Uh, he was the older of two children, but had a very close relationship with his brother, his younger brother, Logan. Um, Shepard's childhood was relatively happy. They do t- kind of talk about some teasing because he was like kind of a small kid, like mm-hmm. And wasn't super athletic. So, you know, he got picked on a little bit for that. But it didn't seem like it was anything when he was young, young, like too Standard kind of Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shepard was described as a friendly kid who took an early interest in politics. Um, Dennis Shepard, his dad, was employed by Saudi Aramco as an oil rig inspector. And so while he was able to attend high school in Casper, his junior year, he actually went to the American school in Switzerland because there mm-hmm. wasn't like an American high school in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So he Which went like, to what a fun time. Switzerland? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he he went to the school in Switzerland and then returned to the U.S. to attend the University of Wyoming at Laramie to study foreign relations, languages, and political science. And his parents, like, stayed back in Saudi Arabia. They were just living there. In 2018, Judy and Dennis Shepard did an interview with ABC News in which they described, like, their son's future plans. Quote, his goal was to work for the State Department to try to bring the same privileges and rights he thought he had in America to other countries. Very altruistic, I think. Yeah. Um, Also a little bit of foreshadowing. Yes. Yeah. In a very dark, dark, Mm -hmm. dark way. They also spoke to Dennis and Judy about Matthew's like coming out Mm -hmm. um, to he he had called his mom, Judy, over the phone and said, um, this is what the interview said, quote, he said, Mom, I'm gay. And I said, what took you so long to tell me? She recalled rejection was not ever an issue in our family. End quote. So I love those stories so much. I know. It's like, duh. (laughs) 
we know. We yeah. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so it was a very accepting, loving family environment. So by the time he was in college, Shepard was living an openly gay life. He did. There was this uh, incident that happened while he was in Morocco on a school trip. Mm. Uh, he was gang raped and beaten by a group of men in Morocco. And when he returned after the attack, um, he obviously became super depressed, had suicidal ideation. He did spend some time in various mental hospitals just trying to like it it was like a really damaging mm-hmm. thing. Um, and he was just starting to like bounce back from that uh, in college. So as mentioned earlier, um, by the time he reached the University, University of Wyoming, Shepard was completely open about his sexuality. He was also involved with the university's LGBT organization. And on October 6, 1998, Shepard had attended a meeting to plan the university's LGBT Awareness Week. Uh, Shepard had suggested heading to the bar afterwards, but nobody really wanted to go out. They were just kind of like, eh, that's fine. So he decided to go out anyway. Um, And he left the campus to go to the Fireside Lounge, which was a bar in Laramie. Sitting alone with a drink at the bar, Shepard was approached by two men, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. Um, The two were also in their early 20s, about the same age as Shepard. And they were, um, they worked as roofers. So these guys were kind of like the laborer type. Mm -hmm. McKinney and Henderson struck up a conversation with Shepard and the three later left the bar together. Now, according to authorities, McKinney and Henderson's testimony later said that they had offered to give Shepard a ride home under the pretense that they were also gay. At some point, I think McKinney had said, Shepard had said, I'm way too drunk to drive. Can you give me a ride home? Either way, all three men got into the car. Um, Shepard was driven to a remote area east of Laramie where he was informed that this was, in fact, a robbery. After tying Shepard to a buck rail fence, McKinney savagely beat him by punching him and pistol whipping him causing him 19 to 21 blows with a 357 caliber magnum and the final blow damaging his brainstem. Henderson then tied Shepard's wrist with clothesline and the pair robbed him of his wallet, ID, and shoes before leaving Shepard tied to the fence unconscious. McKinney and Henderson returned to Laramie with the intention of going to Shepard's apartment and continuing the robbery, but on their way there, they like... They essentially came across this other pair of guys who police think were like vandalizing cars or something in the parking lot. And they got into this altercation with these other two people. Um, And then the cops were called and they like tried to scatter. Police were able to stop Henderson, who was found with Shepard's ID and credit cards, as well as a pistol with a bunch of blood on it. And um, this was all found in his truck. Henderson was arrested and both men were sent to the hospital to treat their head wounds. Later, both men contacted their girlfriends in an attempt to get an alibi and help um, disposing of the evidence. 18 hours after he was tied to the fence, Matthew Shepard was discovered by a passing cyclist who initially mistook the horribly beaten Shepard for a scarecrow. Which is like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Like last night, it's never a mannequin. It Mm -hmm. is never a scarecrow. Like... Yeah. Once he realized that it was actually a person, 
He obviously called 911 and emergency vehicles rushed to the scene where they found a barely alive shepherd. Uh, he was rushed to the hospital where it was determined he suffered from a crushed brainstem as well as four skull fractures. His face was almost completely unrecognizable. It was soon determined that his skull fractures were so bad that he needed to be transported to a hospital in Colorado where he was put into the intensive care unit. Now, Dennis and Judy Shepard were, um, they, they did get in touch with his parents and they rushed home, but, you know, obviously they were still in Saudi Arabia. That's not like, you know, just happen like a whole last day. Yes. Yeah. It's not like an easy trip. They have to take all these flights and it's, it's a long trip. So they rushed home as quick as they could. Um, and they were able to spend Matthew Shepard's final days together. Uh, he never regained consciousness, though, um, ultimately dying from his injuries on October 12th, 1998. Now, by this point, police had obviously made the connection to McKinney and Henderson, who were in custody awaiting. Um, so they essentially <laughs> booked them for like robbery and kidnapping. But once they got the news that Shepard had passed in the hospital, immediately those charges were upgraded to uh, murder. Mm-hmm obviously, felony murder and kidnapping. And now during their police interviews, McKinney and Henderson claimed they had gone to the bathroom and agreed to lure Shepard by telling him they were gay and that the violence started after Shepard put his hand on McKinney's knee. Uh, They both made several comments to the authorities that amounted to a homophobic motive. Now, the reaction to this crime was like, massive on every single side of the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, There were obvious cries for like tougher hate crime legislation. It's worth lots of protests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's worth reminding everyone again, like Wyoming had zero hate crime laws at the time. The, the federal hate crime laws did not cover gender or sexuality. So something, something needed to be done Mm -hmm. at Shepard's funeral on October 16th. What I think I can easily say is the nation's most hated Christian group, the Westboro Baptist Church, yes, <laughs> uh, showed up with anti-gay signs, including such hits as God hates such F-words, hits. Matt in hell, and no special laws for F-words. Like, y'all, <laughs> they literally, yeah, it's... I've never supported domestic terrorism, it's but... Too much. <laughs> Um, I will say Fred Phelps is dead now yeah. and the church is they're still out there doing their antics, but they are not having as big an impact as no. they did when he was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the moment it was kind of a beautiful moment, though, because they had these friends of um, Matthew Shepard who came to the funeral dressed as angels with these mm-hmm. huge like PVC pipe wings Mm -hmm. to essentially block out the protesters from the funeral. It was beautiful. I remember seeing pictures of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's something that they've done later. They did the same thing at the Pulse nightclub Mm -hmm. shooting. Um, Then they did the same thing then as like this kind of tribute to Matthew Shepard. And because it was obviously then like a fucking hate crime as well. (laughs) And people came out to fucking protest Mm -hmm. the memorials. Like, Yeah. I just, if you want to protest, like, protest is your right, but don't fucking do it at someone's funeral or a memorial. Yeah. These are the same people who were like, don't protest on our place of worship. I was just, I was just talking to my mom about this the other day. Ugh. So infuriating. Anyway, 
This is why I believe in anarchy. <laughs> um, Church and state can go fuck off. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, so Henderson resolved his case first by taking a plea deal in 1999. In order to avoid the death sentence, Henderson pled guilty to murder and kidnapping, receiving two life sentences. McKinney went to trial later in the year where his defense team opted for the gay panic defense. Oh, Um, this old chestnut. (laughs) Something that was quickly rejected by the judge. So if you're unfamiliar, gay panic is a mechanism to explain a defendant's actions, essentially blaming someone's sexual orientation for your violent reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure when you're a kid... They teach you, like, just because someone calls you a name doesn't mean you need to react. Yeah. The sticks and stones may break your bones. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is, like, putting the onus on the person that you attack. Like, well, it's their fault. They're gay. Like, like they're the ones that are gay. why'd she wear that? She deserves it kind of a thing. Yeah. It's fucking disgusting. I also want to point out that this, um, although it was rejected in this case by the judge as a defense, um... This is still like a legal defense mechanism. It's not necessarily meant to explain mm-hmm. the whole thing, um, but more of like an element of a defense mm-hmm. to prove to prove other things, right? So yeah. I, I just want to point out this is still legal in most states as Lots a defense. Of fucked up uh, stuff are still legal. Mechanism. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know that people really use it anymore because I cannot imagine the backlash if someone tried to use oh, yeah. gay panic as a defense now. Mm-hmm. But it's still out there. Yep. <laughs> so just just so everyone knows and is aware. So instead, McKinney's defense team managed to strike a deal with prosecutors for consecutive life sentences and an agreement that McKinney wouldn't speak to the media, something he did not stick to, because I will be talking about an interview that he did with the media mm-hmm. here in a minute. Oh, yes. Um, Do I remember? <laughs> bo- both men are still in prison in Wyoming somewhere. Their girlfriends, Kristen Price and Chastity Paisley, were convicted for disposing of evidence and fabricating alibis also. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is a little shocking. Yeah? Yeah. Why? Because Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, And they're true. women. That's you and know? women. <laughs> I feel like, oh, they were just doing what the men told them to do. Oh, God. Yeah. So I'm a little surprised. <laughs> so I do think um, in order to cover this properly, there is... Uh, some other claims that I am obligated to talk about. Okay. So there are some claims that began surfacing around 2004 that Shepard's murder was not actually motivated by homophobia, but instead was a drug-related crime. Mm-hmm. Um, so both McKinney and Henderson were reportedly involved with the methamphetamine folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had originally planned to rob a drug dealer of thousands of dollars of meth, but they never got around to it and instead decided to rob Shepard. So this is from... Which could have been an initial thing. Right. But then it still could turn into a hate crime. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> so this is a quote from the... It was a 2020 interview with McKinney. Like I said, he <laughs> totally sucked his plea bargain. Anyway, mm-hmm. quote, asked directly whether he targeted and attacked Shepard because he was K, McGinney... McKinney told Vargs, no, I did not. I would say it wasn't a hate crime. All I wanted to do was beat him up and rob him, end quote. People also claim it wasn't the first time Shepard had met McKinney and the two sort of like ran in the same party circles. So the connection is like Shepard was 
um, starting to bounce back from this depression, from this attack in Morocco. His friends were really worried that, like, because of these horrible events that he had kind of gotten into the drug scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's reports of that. And they, thinking about where they're at, the only option is, like, math. Right, <laughs> right. Um, I will also say, in the same 2020 interview, they asked former police commander and Judy Shepard what they thought of these claims. Um, This is what they said, quote, I really don't think he was in an amphetamine-induced rage when this happened. I don't buy it at all, O'Malley said. I feel comfortable in my own heart that they did what they did to Matt because they had hatred toward him for being gay, he said. Mm -hmm. Shepard's mother, Judy, also said she doesn't buy into theories that the attack was primarily driven by drugs and money rather than hatred of her son's homosexuality. I'm just not buying into that. There were a lot of things going on that night, and hate was one of them. And they murdered my son, ultimately. Anything else we found out just doesn't just doesn't change the fact, she said. So, like I said, I do feel obligated to point out there is there are these other claims out there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to dig more into, like, this side of things, there's a book out there called... The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matt Shepard by Stephen Jimenez, Jimenez that like does more of a deep dive into that piece of it. I haven't read it at all, but I saw it referenced a lot as sort of a Matthew Shepard truther book. Like, Interesting. <laughs> there are people who are like, I don't know. So take that for what you will. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just had, I did feel obligated to include that for, mm-hmm. for fairness, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, in the wake of Matthew Shepard's death, um, Judy and Dennis became advocates for the LGBTQIA plus community and created the Matthew Shepard Foundation to promote equality and dignity for all people to and to erase hate. Um, there were, of course, calls for a reevaluation of federal hate crime laws. At the time, like we said, Sexual orientation, gender expression were not considered protected classes, which neither was disabilities, which is mm-hmm. something that I found weird. I thought, is it though? Why? Is it weird? <laughs> no, I mean, not, I don't know. I don't know. Ableism, Vicky. Yeah, I Ableism. guess. <laughs> so, why, like, like we said, Wyoming didn't have any hate crime laws at the time. Um, so the crime itself was never charged as a hate crime. Uh, under the law, there was an attempt immediately after this to pass a bill that was um, in Wyoming that defined specific attacks motivated by a person's sexual orientation, but it failed in the House with a tied 30 to 30 vote and has literally never been revisited since. <laughs> Fucking typical. Yeah. There's one of the articles that I <laughs> used for my research literally talks about 15, it, it was written like 15 years after his death and was like, they have changed nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very it interesting article. With yeah. With all of the things that are happening right now, right? everyone. <laughs> right. There was also a 10 year push to get federal legislation passed, starting with Bill Clinton, who, again, like like you said, like this was right at the, the height of the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, this happened literally months after Bill Clinton had admitted to having an affair with Monica Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a lot going on in the world. Um, So they tried to get this legislation passed. By the time it got into Congress, we were now in the George Bush administration, who pretty much was like, I'm going to veto that if it comes up. Um, But then... More criminal. (laughs) Finally, yeah. Finally, in large part due to the aid of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, 
Um, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009 was passed and signed into law by President Obama. Um, James Byrd Jr. is another interesting and horrifying case. Absolutely. I almost covered that, but it's like a it's a lot. It's it a is. lot. Mm-hmm. Um just emotionally. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know that I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um so the Act made it a federal crime to cause or attempt to cause injury to any person because of the victim's race, color, religion, or national origin, or religion, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability if the defendant, the victim, or a weapon used has traveled over state lines or the crime has any link to or effect on interstate commerce. So that's like where the jurisdictional Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. stuff comes in. Yeah. Yeah. In 2018... Matthew Shepard's ashes were interred at the crypt of the Washington National Cathedral, making the it was the first interment of the ashes of a national figure since Helen Keller 50 years before. Um, They talk a lot, too, like not even Harvey Milk got that honor. Yeah. So that's the story of Matthew Shepard and sort of the effect it had on hate crime laws. It is not a real warm and fuzzy story. I don't think he Are ever any of them really? <laughs> tended to be a martyr for the cause. No, probably not. Obviously. I but, mean, Harvey Milk, you could argue. <laughs> right. But definitely not Matthew. Yeah. It's sad, but at the same time, like, it has also propelled a lot of change. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say positive change. Mm-hmm. So just remember. Yeah. Like, I mean, they also still have memorials. Yes. Which, what does that tell you? Yeah. I think National Coming Out Day is the day after. It's, like, mm-hmm. October 13th. Um, like, the, it's, yeah. Um, so listen. <laughs> if you need something a little more upbeat to listen to, maybe, after this very depressing and sad episode, yeah. maybe check out this podcast. Unless they're also doing an episode oh, about hate crimes, which yeah, then... Right. Sorry. <laughs> My <all>. bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Ellen, and I'm scared we exist in the Matrix. I'm Jaslyn, and I'm bad at ad living. <laughs> and you're listening to High Expectations, the promo. For our international listeners, you can appreciate our cute New Zealand accents. For our local listeners, you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter, and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay! Please subscribe. Goodbye! All right, Janelle, that has been our episode. Woohoo! Let's, <laughs> let's talk about some lighter times. Ahead. I mean. <laughs> I don't know if I'm in the mental headspace for that. But no, mm-hmm. just kidding. If you want to come and see us, you can. We have an event coming. Woohoo! We're going to Para Palooza Looza 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 22. <laughs> um, this is an event happening July 23rd. Starts at noon, goes all the way into the evening. Um, tickets are on Eventbrite. It's in Bridgeview. Bridgeview. Yep, Bridgeview, not Bridgeport. <laughs> Always do that. Always mix them up. I go to both places, so it gets confusing. Um, we will be doing a live podcast episode Ooh. as well as Ghostly. 
You can attend the entire event, including all of the stuff for kids and adults, the music, the whole shebang, for $25. Yep. You can also add on a goose tour for an if additional $25. If you're into <laughs> spooky shit, like, mm-hmm. this is going to be your jam. Yes, there's so much stuff. Yes. There's so much stuff. Yeah. Um. So come and see us, buy the tickets, and have fun. Yes. <laughs> we'll be there. We'll be there. Drinking. I mean, maybe not me, but you. Go probably. For it. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, all right. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more just like this at the Bad Taste Crime. Nope. Badtastepodcast.com. <laughs> um, where we have all of our episodes as well as links to our merch page and to our Patreon. Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. I think. All right. Mm-hmm. Our sound and <laughs> sure editing is. is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshetsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We'll see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. Go fuck some shit up. Bye. <laughs> I haven't had to use my remote yet. Let's give us some applause on the way out. Yeah. Woo-hoo.